ask this in your son's name. Amen. Good morning, Christian Fellowship Church. As our uh, children head to CFC Kids, we pray for our volunteers and that they would uh, plant good seeds in the hearts of our children as they receive the word uh, from our teachers. Uh, we are going to be uh, in God's word, of course, in a, uh, a text that has always been difficult, but has been, has been receiving attention uh, the past few years. Uh, but let's ask the Lord's help as, before we get into it. Father, we do pray for uh, our children and our volunteers downstairs. We pray that your word will be taught with clarity, that uh, the children would be able to understand, grasp, uh, that seeds would be planted. Uh, even if we don't see fruit right away, that uh, we would begin to see fruit in the coming days, months, years in their lives, Lord, that they would not depart from the truths implanted in their hearts, Lord. And we pray for our volunteers to be encouraged in that task. We pray for our parents to uh, be the, the main source of that discipleship at home. Uh, Father, we also pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. We pray that they would not lose hearts, not lose faith, um, but be examples for a watching world as, with regard to perseverance and fortitude uh, Father, we pray for your churches in Russia, uh, that they would uh, also be a light, however they're able to. Um, and Lord, Lord, as we think about the relationship between Christians and governing authorities, uh, we ask for wisdom this morning to think rightly about your truth and how to live out your truth in a, a very confusing world. And so we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be in Romans 13, which deals with the Christian's responsibility to government. The Christian's responsibility to government. And there are so many uh, factors, things that might be swimming around in our minds or in our hearts with regard to a passage like this. But probably the most recent cause for controversy over Romans 13 was the lockdowns. When the government tells a church, don't have church on Sunday, what do you do? And when you have passages that tell you to obey the government, we have pastors tripping over themselves, going, well, Romans 13 isn't really saying what Romans 13 is saying. Isn't it, though? <laughs> it's complicated. And so we're going to get into Romans 13 together. Please turn there if you haven't already. And uh, some people have a hard time understanding why this is even here. Why is Paul even getting into the Christian's responsibility to government? Well, I think it's not that hard to figure out. You remember he's laid down the gospel foundations in the first 11 chapters. Then in the first couple of verses of chapter 12, he didn't write this in chapters and verses. We put the numbers later to help us find, find our way around. But right when he gets to those first two verses in chapter 12, he kind of turns a corner. Now we're going to start applying this stuff, guys. All this stuff we've talked about in the first 11 verses, here's what it looks like. And first, here's what it looks like inside the church. Then he goes into spiritual gifts in verses 3 through 8, right? Then he starts talking about loving one another in the way that we serve the Lord, showing honor to one another, verse 9. Uh, serving the Lord, verse 11. Being patient, 
constant in prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints. See, he's still in-house. How we love each other. Living out Romans 1 through 11 with each other. Showing hospitality to each other, verse 13. Then he previews outside the church, verse 14. How about those who persecute you? And then he really gets into it in the end of that last paragraph of chapter 12. Not repaying anyone evil for evil, but living peaceably with all. Who's all there? Everybody outside the church, even those who give you a hard time for being a Christian. Never avenge yourselves, verse 19. Leave that to God's wrath. You're going to have enemies outside the church, in verse 20. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Don't overcome evil with evil. Overcome evil with good. There's evil out there. So, first 11 chapters, gospel foundations. Then he opens up chapter 12, how we live out the gospel with each other. And then he turns our attention to how we live out the gospel out there with people that persecute the church or against the church. Now he wants to talk about out there, but in terms of how we relate to governing authorities. He doesn't say explicitly whether these governing authorities are persecuting the church or not persecuting, persecuting the church. He's speaking in general terms, government in general. And normally I don't like to preach all the exceptions of a passage because then we start losing the thrust of a passage. If there's a passage that says, love your wife, and we can all think of uh, times where it's really difficult to love your wife, times where that's not the loving thing to do, what does Paul really mean? We start tripping over ourselves with all the exceptions, we end up not loving our wives. I want to talk about what this passage does tell us to do and not spend most of our time explaining it away. However, because of recent lockdowns and difficulties and the possibilities of those kinds of exceptions, we do have to address exceptions maybe a little bit more than I would in a typical sermon. Let's lay the groundwork and see what Paul is saying. And as we do that along the way, we'll see also what he is not saying. Let me read. We're going to actually go all the way through verse 10. But let me read the first seven verses together, and then we'll start at the top and break, break it down one piece at a time. He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, uh, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Y'all already know we, got some, we have some tough words coming in this sermon, all right? And I'm in the boat with you. It's a difficult passage on many fronts. It's difficult because some of us already have an anti-authoritarian stance 
Some of that is our, um, the, the American blood that runs through our veins, man. All right? With the don't tread on me flag hanging in the garage wall. All right? The marine sticker on the back of the car. Like we have this, this it's in our constitution to view authority in a little bit of a different way. Actually, our highest authority is the constitution and not a person. So there are some differences that we do keep in mind. But we need to be careful not to explain away the text with sort of American lenses to say, well, actually, the citizen is the ultimate authority. Well, no, no. That will undo what he's saying. But nor do we want to pretend like there are zero exceptions because that can't, that interpretation doesn't hold any water either. So let's start at the top, right there at the top of chapter 13, verse 1. Here's the command. And then he's going to unpack the command, explain the command, emphasize the command. But here's the command, not an option, not a question. It's not a rhetorical question. It's not, hey, think about this. Let's see what you think. Let's take a vote. Let every person, how many people? Which people in the Roman church? All. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Some people are like, well, be subject, it doesn't mean obey. Subject, submit, obey, follow, do what they say. There's no need to do what he means by being subject. Subject yourselves to the governing authorities. And he doesn't mean by governing authorities, angelic authorities, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the church authorities that govern the church. No, no, no. He's talking about the authorities that bear the sword. As he says in verse 4. These are the governing, the human authorities to whom you pay taxes. In verse Five to seven. So these are governors, kings, emperors, mayors, sheriffs, police. Instead of a sword, now it's a sidearm or a rifle or a shotgun. These are the authorities he's talking about. And what are you supposed to do to them? Be subject to the governing authorities. Now, on one level, this is quite simple. You're driving. The lights come on in a squad car behind you. What should you do as a Christian? I report to a higher authority. I report to the creator of lights. Pull over. At, on, on one level, this isn't hard to interpret. Is that a governing authority? Yes. Now, if some clown is driving in some Honda Civic and is like, hey, pull over, that's up to you. An official governing authority, somebody... Now, you have the right to say, let me see your badge. Let me see that badge number. Because if you are not a cop, I don't have to listen to what you're saying. But if it's a governing authority, what is the command? To every single Christian, be subject. Be subject to the governing authorities. Now, here's, here's the thing that we really need to put in our pipe to smoke, right? That might be a weird Christian preacher thing to say, but... To really swallow this. Now look, the, the first reason he gives is how these ministers, it's not, it's not Paul saying, let's just try to keep peace. Everybody chill, and that'll give the best chance we have for the gospel to come out. Because maybe that could be a strategy. The less 
friction we have with the government, the more we can do as a church. And maybe that's just a strategic move. Nope, that's not his strategy at all. That might be true. But he says the reason why you have to pull over when the lights come on, the reason why you have to do what the government tells you to do is because those governing authorities are put there by God to be your authority. And you're like, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. We vote. We vote in this country. The majority of the people decided. Have you read the rest of the Bible? You know how like when God uh, explains to uh, Rebecca that these two twins, one of them is going to serve the other one? But she's the one that convinces Jacob to get that blessing through deceit. She doesn't just go, well... I guess God is just going to make it happen. She still does something there. Now, it was deceitful. But God orchestrates things in such a way that he's still orchestrating it, even though it plays out through human actions. So we can't say, well, because we vote, we're the ones that put someone in charge, and God is up there like, ah, I, I gave Americans freedom, and look, they put this guy in charge. What am I going to do? I guess I'll fo- go focus on another country. Look at the emphasis. How often it says they are from God. He says, for there is no authority except from God. Not just governing authorities. There are no authorities. Kids, your principal at school, the teacher in your classroom that's really annoying, they are not random authorities in your life. All authorities are put there by God. All good authorities, all bad authorities, all authorities that do a really good job, all of them. But his focus is on the ones that bear the sword here. And he says, no authority except, there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. They're from God and they were instituted by God. Whether it got there through election, through a a political coup, a revolution, inheritance. The dude's father was a king. I guess he's the king now. However he got there, he's instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, verse 2, resists What God has appointed. There's a third time he said it. And those who resist will incur judgment. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to do good good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. Why? Verse 4, I'm going to tell you the same reason again. He is God's servant for your good. Now in church we have deacons. What I've tried to explain before is deacons carry a kind of authority. It's not the same as the elders. It's the delegated authority. But deacons with authority is different than servant small s. It's an office. And he's saying outside in the world, there's still a kind of liturgy. There's still a kind of order. And it's not that God is only in charge of things inside the church. And outside the church, God is like, I don't know, I'm scratching my head. He institutes leaders in the church. And he institutes leaders out there. They are God's servants. They may not know they are God's servant. You pull over, the police officer approaches your window, and you ask them, do you realize you're God's servant? They might be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Show me your license. They might be ignorant as to their, how they got their role and what their actual role is. But Paul is peeling back the curtain. You Christians know really what's up. And you know that they're not there by accident. They're not there just because of their sheer will or how much they ingratiated themselves with the public. They're there because they're God's 
servant. Then he says this again in the same verse, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God. Okay, I already get it, Paul. You said it five times now. An avenger who carries out God's wrath. God has assembled a team of avengers. And I'm sorry to tell you, they don't, they don't wear capes and throw indestructible shields. Some of them wear a shield. Those are God's servants. They're God's servants for your good. They're servants of God, again in the same verse. And what they do is they carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer at the end of verse 4. first thing we need to understand what's clear about this verse is we don't get to choose which authorities we'll listen to and which ones we don't listen to. They're authorities. You listen. Does that mean we, we don't try to uh, speak up when something is wrong? Or that we shouldn't show up in voting booths? Well, God's sovereignty, why even vote? No. <laughs> we do get involved as much as we're able to at the end of the day, you may not like who got elected. You, may, you might not like the person pulled you over or why they pulled you over. But they are God's servant. Lock that in. That is God's servant. He says it once, twice, three times, four times, five times. Now, we understand that there are exceptions in a sense. If you are told by the government to not do something that God clearly tells you to do, or the government tells you to do something that God clearly didn't tell you to do, you were supposed to disobey. And the reason we know that is back up in chapter 12, in verse 14, bless those who persecute you, what is there to persecute if I just do everything the government says? Right? If I just comply with everything the government says, even when they tell me to worship Caesar instead of Christ, if they come to my house and say, burn all your Bibles, read this instead, do your devotionals in this instead, when would I ever be persecuted if I just did everything they said? So built into what he's already saying, of course he doesn't have in mind disobeying the gospel, not communicating the gospel when you're told not to. Because then there wouldn't be any persecution. We wouldn't have enemies in verse 20. There would be no need for vengeance in verse 19. And then when you finally get to the wrath that God delivers, when he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And you get to passages like Revelation 19, where Jesus is riding the horse. Who's he cutting down in that passage? The authorities of the world that sought to take control of the throne instead of giving the throne to Christ. They will pay for judging wrongly and for pushing Christ out of the entire system. But we're not the ones to exact that payment. The submission to authority when they tell you don't preach the gospel and you preach it anyway is you preach it anyway and here's my wrist for the cuffs. Not I preach it and then load my shotgun, come to the pulpit and let's see what happens. 
It's preach it, and here's my wrist for the cuffs. That's subjection. Paul wasn't staging a coup. He's not trying to, he's writing Romans, but there's a secret letter of Romans underneath that he's really saying, we're actually going to kill the emperor and take over, and we're going to get Jesus' throne. Didn't the disciples already think that? And Jesus rebuked them for it. And then he tells them, not take up your arms. It's take up your cross. You're going to die too when the government doesn't like what you have to say. Subject yourselves to the authorities. Because if you resist them, you resist what God has appointed, verse 2. You resist God's avengers for wrath. You resist God's servant, verse 4. These authorities are from God, verse 1. They're instituted by God, verse 1. And so even if we have to disobey the law because of a gospel issue, a clear scripture issue, we do it in a non-retaliation way. Then we see their purpose. The purpose of government is for our good. Check this out in verse 3 and following. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad conduct. Now you're going to see this, this interplay between good and bad, wrong and good. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct. They're a terror to bad conduct. Would you have no fear of the one who was in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Why? For he is God's servant for what? For your good. Do what is good to receive approval instead of the terror of the, of the government. Verse 4, the reason why is he's God's servant for your good. But if you do what is not good, if you do what is wrong, then you should be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the person who does wrong. Good, wrong, good, bad. That's the purpose of government. Now does Paul realize, does he, has it dawned on Paul's mind that you could have a government that misdefines what is good and misdefines what is bad? A government that calls some things that are truly good bad and some things that are truly bad the government calls it good? Yes, we saw that in chapters 1 and 2. The decay of the morality of, a, of, a, of the world, of people, and of course of governing systems. But again, he's not talking about Every single instance, every single law that is given out, there are times where the government calls something good that's bad and calls something bad that's good. A lot of the times we just have to sit back and lament because there's not much we can do about it. Other times we have to make a decision because the government is telling you, do this good thing. And you're like, whoa, Scripture tells me that's a bad thing. There's the conflict. But before we deal with that, we need to recognize that they're God's servants and they're there for a purpose. Overall, there's a good that they're doing. I don't know if you've ever read the small book Machiavelli uh, explaining his tactics to the king. Here's how you rule. And I was struck by, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's wicked. <laughs> it's not Christian, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Machiavelli. But it strikes me that there's a kind of, there's an order to it. Even when Machiavelli tells the emperor, what you have to do 
is get the people to love you, but not love you so much that they don't fear you, but not fear you so much they don't love you. So sometimes you got to bless them and give them some stuff. And they're like, man, what a good emperor. But sometimes you have to make an example and pull a few people out and show some wrath. And they go, whoa. And if you maintain that balance, you can rule the people. What is the point of Machiavellian tactics? The point is order. Now, along the way, some of those principles are not Christian principles. A lot of them are not. But even when you have a despotic dictator at the top, who reads Machiavelli at night for his devotional. The point is, overall, we're keeping order here rather than anarchy, such that a Machiavellian dictator is better than no government at all. Where everyone is just running around doing whatever they want, slaughtering each other. It's better to have some kind of system, some kind of order. And Paul is writing to Christians living in Rome. A lot of people identify the emperor at this time was Nero. And they say, well, this was in Nero's early years. This was good, the good side of Nero before Nero went bad. Keep in mind, when Nero went bad, it's hard to find a ruler who was worse than Nero. So the good side, the, the good beginning of Nero, we're not talking about a benevolent ruler who just went around giving people hugs. This is a wicked kingdom that his Christians, that the Christians in Rome are living under, and he's writing them. It's not like this was some utopia and then wicked governments came later. The wicked government was there then, and Paul is writing to Christians living under wicked rulers then. Paul himself would be killed by this wicked government. And what does he write them? He writes them, hey, these are God's servants and even though you can point to an instance where that wasn't right the way the cop treated that person, that was not right. That wasn't right, sending that kid to detention. That teacher's a jerk. Right? That principal shouldn't have done that. Look the other way instead of handling that bully. Can you find instances? Yes. What Paul is saying is you can't work from the instances to go back up and delete the entire system. I'm so sick of cops doing a bad job, let's take their guns away. Bear the sword. Well, maybe they could get their own sword, but we're not going to fund them. Pay your taxes. Fund the dudes with the swords so they can have swords, have more swords, have the tools that they need to sharpen the swords. There is no defund the government. If the government says, give me this kind of money so I can have more swords, what are you supposed to do? Pay up. Now we can think, man, well, what, what, what will they do with my money? What will they do? If I pay taxes, will they do this, that, and the other thing with it? Yeah, probably. Amazingly, Paul doesn't just drop in with this taxes thing out of nowhere. You can think back to Luke chapter 20 and the other Gospels. But remember, they asked, like, are we supposed to pay taxes to Caesar? We're going to really get Jesus here. We're really going to trap Jesus. That was their intention. We're going to trap him. Because if he says we should pay taxes to Caesar, it's like he's saying, yeah, we should glorify Caesar. Caesar is above everybody. Caesar is above Jesus. He's above God. We're, we're, we're paying him. But if he says we shouldn't pay Caesar, we can go tell on him, and Caesar will kill him. That's what they really wanted. 
And then what did Jesus, how did Jesus respond? Show me the coin. Whose face is on it? Caesar? Well, then give Caesar his. You see an image, and because that coin has an image on it, that means it belongs to the one whose image it bears. But then he says, but, render to God what is God's, a slick way of saying, whose image do we bear? Who owns you? And who owns you? And who owns Caesar? The one who created Caesar in his own image. Who's above the guy who's above the coins? God. So don't pay Caesar his coin because Caesar's on par with God. You pay Caesar his coin because Caesar is under God. I thought Caesar was wicked. He's still under God. We have such a, sometimes our our idea of separation of church and state is so, there's such a stark bifurcation between the two things. There's no overlap at all. And God only has control over the church and has no idea what's going on in the world. And that's not true. God has control over the governing spheres as well. Even if they're not Christians, even if they don't submit to him, even if they attack his church, governing authorities are there for a reason. And in general, it's for your good. You might not like that law. You might think some of those laws are stupid. But in general, they're put in place for the good of the public. And we should understand that to be God's reasoning for putting those governing authorities there because that's what Paul said. And we don't get to say, yeah, yeah, in that context, but in my context, and then we undo Romans 13. We don't want to do that. Let it say what it's saying. And it doesn't mean that you listen to God, uh, to the governing authorities without exception blindly, but it does mean that we shouldn't be too quick to listen to the preachers, the teachers, especially coming out of the woodworks lately, talking about people are hiding behind Romans 13. You just fear the government rather than fearing God. No, I fear the government because I fear God. It says it right there to fear them. Have you no fear? I am supposed to fear the government. If you see those lights come on, do you feel a little pull over? You should. You know when you're in trouble? When you're like, this stupid cop pull over. I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. Nah, nah, nah. You should have a little bit of that tingle because the dude bears arms for a reason. Now, as we look at this passage, we have to recognize that there are exceptions. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a verse 12, chapter 12, verse 14. We wouldn't have 12, 19 to the end of the chapter. We wouldn't have disciples getting killed. Jesus himself wouldn't have been executed. Paul wouldn't have been executed, etc. So obviously, there are exceptions. And here's the exception. The exception to this, when you should not comply with the government's orders, the exception is when those orders clearly countermand a clear scriptural command. 
when the government's commands clearly contradict a clear scriptural command. We need clarity on both ends. I need to be clear what scripture is telling me to do or not do so that I can understand clearly whether this law is contradicting that command. Sometimes it's not that hard. Daniel's told to bow to these idols. He does not bow to the idols. He's told to pray to no one else. He prays to God. That's not that hard. You should understand the difference between worshiping Yahweh through Christ and bowing to an idol and worshiping something else. But it's, it's clear. I mean, some Christians are like, uh, if, I, if I pull up to Starbucks and instead of paying cash, I scan the QR code, is that the mark of the beast? Like, you're not going to get surprised by the mark of the beast. You will know that to take such an action is to deny Christ and worship something or someone else. You will know when that decision is in front of you. So Paul's not talking about situations that are so complex that are really difficult. We're going to make different decisions across the board. Exceptions have to be clear. One easy exception might be the taxes issue. I realize I didn't read those verses. Let's read it. I'll just make one more comment. He says in verse 5, just, he's going to bring it down to down-to-earth application because we're like, what's an example of, the, of what's clear? Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Remember, he talked about conscience in chapter 2. He'll bring up conscience again in chapter 9. In chapter 2, the conscience is the person who doesn't have Christ that still works for them. In chapter 9, the conscience is the person who does have Christ. The conscience still works for us too. It bears witness, he says, in both places. The function of the conscience is to bear witness, to tell you, hey, this is wrong. Hey, that's not right. And what he's saying is your own conscience tells you governing authorities are to be listened to. And it's for that reason that you pay taxes. Verse 6 for because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God. There's the, there it is again. Is that number six? Ministers of God attending to this very thing. So what do you do? Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Now I love that he gets practical here because he uses a difficult situation, doesn't he? You could imagine turning taxes into an exemption, saying, Last year, I paid all these taxes, and the government did A, B, and C with it. And A, B, and C are clearly against what Scripture teaches. Therefore, I should not fund what the government is doing with that money. If I fund what the government is doing with that money, and those things are counter-scriptural, I shouldn't be behind it. Therefore, I'm going to conscientiously disobey and uh, withdraw, and I'm not going to pay taxes. Go ahead and arrest me. I'm just listening to Scripture. No, you're not. Paul uh, made it clear, Luke, uh, or Jesus made it clear in the Gospels that even though you could make the case that you are in some backdoor way participating in something that the government is doing, it that doesn't let you off the hook. Well, it's clear in my mind, I pay them, they take what I pay, they do this. I fund the police. This police officer shot the person wrongly, therefore, re- go backwards, I shouldn't fund the police. And Paul is like, uh, I'm ahead of you on this. Wrong. 
because you don't use exceptions to erase the rule. You don't use the abuses to, as we say, throw the baby out with the bathwater. And there's a real baby in there. And that is the position of governing authorities over communities. And then to press it further, he says, don't just pay what is owed monetarily, but you owe respect and honor. Now, I'm, I'm guessing that most of y'all pay your taxes. But are there ways in which we dishonor the emperor in ways that contradict what Paul is saying here? I think so, probably. I'll just ask it rhetorically, but if I go through your social media feeds, do we see the president in stupid poses? Do you forward videos that just make fun of the vice president's laugh? Look at this idiot. Look at this buffoon. What did Jesus say about calling somebody a fool? Like, oh yeah, we shouldn't do that. Unless it's the president, then I have permission. Especially when it's the president, you don't have permission. But this person's wicked. They, they vie for wicked things. He is the emperor. And there's a kind of honor that we're supposed to play. Now, honor doesn't mean I agree. Honor doesn't mean you go on there and do, do the fake thing. What a great president. I pray for him daily. I, I love the president. I have embroidered pillows with his name on it. That, he's not saying that. But we're not to be disrespectful. This person is in a position, and this doesn't just go for president. How do you handle your employer when you disagree with your employer? How do you handle your teacher when your teacher picks on you, says something? Are you allowed to like, oh, this teacher's so stupid. You are not allowed to do that. That doesn't mean you have to go, this teacher's so great. It's just show honor. Show honor. I don't know any other way to uh, understand this. I mean, when the Ten Commandments say honor your parents, do we, do we backflip on that one? Well, honor your parents, I mean, you could... You know, you could talk back, you could throw things at them, as long as you don't kill them. That's what we mean by honor. As long as you don't stage a coup in the house, but, you know, you can, whatever, you can take their food that they served you and just throw it to the dog and say, forget you, mom. Like, you could just be disrespectful, but you're still showing honor. We don't do that there. Why do we do that here? It's not your American right. You have biblical values that precede what you're told your American rights are supposed to be. And even if we utilize free speech, we use it with honor and respect. You know how when you disagree with somebody, a lot of times you say, you know, with all due respect, I want to say it this way. It doesn't mean you can't disagree. It just means you're not supposed to be dishonor, dishonoring in the way you communicate it. I think verse 7 is a tough pill to swallow because it opens it just beyond taxes. We don't get to just pay our taxes and dishonor in other ways. We're supposed to pay respect. Look, at he uses two words. The first one, respect, is actually a translation of the word fear. Give fear to the one to whom you should fear, and honor to the one to whom honor is owed. You're being pulled over. You think it's not right. You just saw three YouTube videos of cops doing terrible things, and you don't feel like honoring this person. 
What do you think Paul would say? Too bad? We don't get to erase verse 7 because you saw a YouTube video. Do you understand what I'm saying? Y'all should be the most respectful people to police officers, teachers, how we talk about politics on social media. Respect. And you can disagree and have arguments and debates. That's good. We should. Talk about Christian values. You can even point out, you see, we voted in this person, and you see these things happening. There is a connection, folks. We can do that without saying, do you see this bumbling idiot? Verse 7 is a command. Now, we often leave out 8 through 10, and I'm going to connect it with this, and then we're going to wrap up with this and then return to uh, COVID lockdown to wrap it up on something for closure. (laughs) But he just finished talking about paying what is owed in verse 7, right? And just because your English translation puts a rubric there and maybe a spacing and it's like, next topic, I'm not sure it's the next topic. He's still talking about owing in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now he's talking about law that dominates and rules your life. For the commandments, you shall, now the second table of the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment in that table, in the ten, outside of the ten. Any commandment that we have from Scripture is what? Is summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Remember the wrong and good, bad and good? He's still on that. This paragraph belongs with the previous paragraph. Love does no wrong to the neighbor, so if you love well, in general, the government's going to leave you alone. How do we know what love is? God's laws help us understand what love is. You remember when we walked through Leviticus? We're supposed to be holy and we're supposed to love neighbor but we sometimes struggle to know what that looks like. And so the Bible gives all these laws to help train us into understanding, oh, that's what it looks like. Not killing the dude. Oh, that's what it looks like. Honoring my mother and father. Oh, that's what it looks like. Not being a workaholic and taking one day out of the week to rest. Oh, that's what loving God looks like. Not turning him into something he's not, but worshiping him for who he actually is. That's what loving God looks like. Oh, ah, I get it. When my neighbor's animal is stuck in the bush, I shouldn't just walk by, but I should help the animal get out because that's how that neighbor makes money. And my neighbor loses money if I just ignore the animal in the bush. Oh, that's what love looks like. What if somebody breaks into my house and I'm afraid for my family and I bonk him on the head and he dies? I'm supposed to love my neighbor by not killing them. And then Leviticus says, I know, but in that instance, he was trying to kill your whole family, or you don't know what he was trying to take from you, and you were defending yourself. That's not that. Oh, you see? Why is Leviticus so long? Because it's helping us, not just Leviticus, all the laws. And Paul is saying all of God's laws are helping us understand what love looks like. And that's what the government is there for to help us live in neighborly ways with each other. Do they do it perfectly? Do they know that's what they're doing? No. But we do. We do. And so we don't just look at the Constitution to see what can I do and get away with legally. We look at Scripture 
to say, what should I be living like? What, scripture should be controlling what it looks like to love God in this world, out there, to love each other. And sometimes people say, well, my neighbor is actually my church, fellow church member. I don't have to do that with anybody else. Remember when Jesus told a parable exactly to that point? And the point of the parable was not who was a neighbor to the Samaritan, but to whom was the Samaritan a neighbor? And the difference is one person walking around saying, you're my neighbor, but you're not. You're my neighbor, but you're not. And I get to choose whom I love versus like the good Samaritan saying, I am the neighbor. And that means everybody. So Paul is still talking about not just in the church, but out there living in a world where we're being governed by human governing authorities. Almost always they're not Christian. (laughs) And the way we operate in that sphere is to be loving to neighbor, but loving neighbor is controlled and, and explained by God's laws. So, here's how I would say it. Except for instances where there is a clear violation of God's law, we submit to God's governing authorities. We submit to God's governing authorities, except when that governing authority is asking us to not love by breaking God's clear scripturally clear law. Now here's the test case real quick. We'll wrap up with this. I know we're coming up on time, but I think this is a big topic, an important topic, because if you think that COVID fiasco was the last we've seen of that, then I don't know where you've been. I don't, I don't know where you've been. I don't, know, I don't know what you're thinking. These are situations that are going to happen again. We've got pastors that have been arrested. There are churches, I think, that are still not meeting. And then everything in between. Now, some of you weren't here back when this first went down. We're hearing things like, we need to shut down, we need to stay away from each other, don't wear a mask, masks are running out, never mind wear a mask, masks work, they don't work, they work like this. Hospitals are being overrun. You drive by some hospitals, nobody's there. Then you talk to nurses, we don't have enough people. There's not enough ventilators. Then it's like, no, the worst thing you could do is put them on a ventilator. We were thrown into a, a mix, a vortex of information, cross-information, misinformation. And not any of us here that I know of are qualified to work for the CDC or we're not immunologists. But we're looking at Scripture tell us we're supposed to obey the government, we're also looking at scripture that demands certain things of us, like meeting together, singing together, having communion together. Well, those are commands. So what do you do when the government comes and says, hey, you need to stop? And like, whoa, 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 you're going out of your lane, government, government, you're supposed to be for the greater good. It is for the greater good. That's the reason why we're telling you to stop meeting. I remember one Sunday, we tried to just say, look, if you have symptoms, stay home. (laughs) And I just want to be candid. I mean, it seemed to me like that's not going to work. Because as soon as we sent out the notice, hey, if if y'all have symptoms, stay home. Some of y'all who didn't have symptoms stayed home, I think, because, you know, we're scared and we don't know what's going on. I'm not trying to judge anybody uh, on that moment. 
And then some of us who did have symptoms came anyway. You can hear it in the sermon audio that Sunday. <coughs> I freaked out. I was like, whoa, is this going to work? Then on top of that, we're singing on top of each other. We're, we have one in entrance and exit out of the sanctuary. We're, come, we're passing by one another. It's hard for us to resist giving hugs and shaking hands. How paranoid are we going to be? Like, I shook that person's hand. Let me get my wipe. Wait, let me not shake your hand yet. Did I touch my nose? Did I touch my face? I think we were thrust into a situation where we weren't sure exactly what to do. And because I didn't have the expertise, I'll just put myself in it, I didn't have the expertise to know with clarity that the government is lying or that the government doesn't know what they're talking about, that this virus either doesn't exist or isn't what they're saying it is. Hindsight is 2020. When you're back in it, we were unsure. However, were we really doing church? We went to Zoom, and we tried to recreate as much of it as we could. I don't think that's church, folks. I don't think that's church. We weren't singing together. A lot of people, I looked on the, the Brady Bunch Zoom, all the squares, and I'm checking everybody out. People that, they don't sing even when they're in person. I'm like, yeah, I get it. And then some people, I know they sing when they're in person, and they're not singing, even though they're on mute. They just don't want to sing next to their spouse without getting drowned out by the rest of the congregation. I don't know what the, the reason is, but a bunch of people on couches not singing. Poor Ben in some girl's pink bedroom trying to lead with a guitar, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, dude, just singing by himself, you know what I mean? Like, well, that wasn't congregational singing. We weren't taking communion. We weren't sharing spiritual gifts with each other. It's not church. Now, on the other hand, you have passages like Hebrews 10 that say, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Remember that passage, Hebrews 10.25? Don't give up meeting together like some are in the habit of doing. I think what he's talking about there is people are like, you know what, I'm not going to church. I'm tired. People are difficult. People are annoying. Or people ask questions. And if they ask me what I've been up to, and I was going to be honest, it's not such good things. And, and the author of Hebrews is saying, don't give up meeting together because when you meet together, you encourage one another and stir one another up toward good works. And when you don't meet together, you don't get that encouragement, you don't get that stirring, and you're going to run into problems. Now, I don't think what we did back then was, you know what, we're going to give up meeting together. It was different. Is it, is it loving neighbor to meet anyway and risk losing some of our seniors some of our people with serious comorbidities? Or is it more loving to encourage one another toward good works and continue to meet together like we're told to? And maybe there really isn't a risk or it's worth the risk. And there's the real difficulty. I'm going to just be pretty straightforward and candid with you now. I don't see that happening again. Stopping church because of a virus? I mean, honestly, if people are not banging on my window, foaming at the mouth, they're eating each other, and we're in a straight-up zombie, like we see it with our eyes, it's taking over the streets, as I am legend in real life, you could have been killed coming to church this morning. If you compare the stats with COVID to car accidents, heart disease, any number of cancers, 
well, there's, let's just never go to church. Let's never risk passing a germ. Let's never risk passing a disease. And let me tell you this, when we minimize congregational singing as optional, it was nice. It was nice. It felt good today. I liked hearing the voices. I mean, I don't want to be cheeky, but that's not the point. Like, who cares? Who cares if it sounded nice or the notes were on point? That's not the point of congregational singing. The point of congregational singing, according to Colossians 3.16, is to admonish one another, teach one another. Not just from elders to us, but us to each other across. And you can't do that watching online. Now, I do think if you have symptoms of something, it doesn't have to be COVID, I don't want your anything. I think you can stay home a Sunday and not break Hebrews 10.25. Understand what I'm saying? That's not giving up meeting together. You know you're sick. You know you can spread this. Stay home. Stay home. But when you stay home, you miss church. You miss church. You don't say, no, I had church. I watched online. I'll say, no, you didn't. The church is a congregation. Congregations do what they congregate. We are in assembly. And if you didn't assemble with us, you missed church that Sunday. I'm not saying that was a sin. I'm saying you lovingly protected everybody else from your germs. Thank you. That's different from, where have you been the past three months? Ah, yeah, just, I don't know, church is early, and I just, I don't know, my friends came in town, we went to play golf. That's different. But we also don't want to say, well, it's loving neighbor to protect each other from any possibility whatsoever of dying. We would never commute to church in vehicles on a road with people who don't know how to drive. We just wouldn't meet at all. There are shooters out there looking for congregations to light up. We've heard of church bombings. There are diseases. There are viruses. They will not go away. Are you going to meet... I think if the government comes again and says, no, 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 we're locking down churches again, you're not allowed to meet because A, B, and C, hey, man, you shot your shot. Not only did it not look like what you told us it looked like in the beginning, but you made things worse, man. Not just out there. I'm not just talking about depression, suicide rates, job losses, businesses closing down. That's the government's job to figure that out, not the church's job to figure that out. I'm talking about the fallout from not being together. The spiritual encouragement that we miss when we're not together. That is something we have to have more ingrained in our own hearts that when we miss church, we long to not miss that again. Friend comes in town, you're like, hey, I'm going to church. Did your friend make you miss your workout? Did your friend make your kid miss soccer practice? This has to be so integral to our spiritual development. And spiritual isn't some small little lane over here that matters very little. It's life. Jesus says, when I come back, am I going to find faith? Is he? Or is he going to find people who dodge church at whatever excuse? Did we do wrong by moving to Zoom? I don't know. I think we're trying to get clarity. Is this, I think we were trying to love each other in that moment. I think we were trying to love especially our seniors in that moment. I don't know if that transpired again, if we would have the, the same decision. But what we're wrestling with in that moment is not whether to listen to Romans 13 or discard Romans 13. What Romans 13 is teaching 
is that we listen to the government unless the government is countermanding God's clear commands. And brothers and sisters, meeting together is commanded. And it's commanded for our good. But let's not use that to make up any old excuse to dishonor, disrespect, or lack fear for the governing authorities who bear the sword as God's ministers. Let's pray. Fathers, we look into the future. We can't see what's coming. We can't see what other uh, challenges the church might have. Our Lord, if we did not do enough digging, if we did not do enough research, if we too quickly trusted governing officials uh, with regard to our decisions back when the COVID stuff first hit, Lord, we, we ask that you would point out, show us that, so that we can repent of it and do better next time. Father, if we too easily gave up, if we too easily missed meeting with each other or didn't really miss it as much as we should in our minds and in our hearts, Lord, we ask for forgiveness for that. Father, I pray that each and every one of us would do what is in our power to do to be healthy for one another. Uh, Maybe to minimize uh, other comorbidities so that we can better withstand sicknesses so that we can be together in health. Show up to encourage one another. Help us to think about ways in which we can do that together. And if there comes a time where the government asks us to do something we shouldn't do, or ask us to not do something we should do, would you give us courage and boldness to honor the emperor in a way that honors you first? And if we need to endure persecution, fines, fees, or jail time, Lord, would you build in us the conviction to be clear on the things that scripture is clear about and to love one another uh, from our hearts, and with sincerity. As we close in the song, Lord, allow us to put you first in our minds and in our hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and we'll close in the song together.